the use of authority figures as a way to persuade people to accept vaccines actually push people away from vaccination. And we still see a lot of institutions relying on authority figures as a way to help improve some of these numbers that we're seeing. Cognitive biases affecting vaccination decisions. Today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today, we're going to be talking about vaccination and what makes people decide whether to do it. We have an interview with Jacob Browdy from ZS, a consulting services firm with a specialization in life science. But first, let's hear from HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack as they go Beyond the News. Hey, everybody. On Wednesday, March 23rd, John and I are going to host a webinar on the latest news and trends in healthcare disruption. We've talked about that topic in this segment before, and we just think it's more appropriate for a more extended format because there's so much that we can delve into. Probably the biggest thing is what HFMA audience members, the uh, healthcare finance professionals who chances are work at what you might call a traditional provider, uh, should know as far as the opportunities and the pitfalls for their organizations as disruption takes hold. So, Sean, what are you especially looking forward to discussing when the session takes place? I think one of the things that we probably will focus heavily on are what's the legacy provider's approach to either embracing or trying to compete with some of these new disruptors with the strong, very strong focus on value-based care over the next seven years that we've seen come out in the estimations of growth. And in the healthcare market, which is so large in the U.S., how are legacy providers going to react to Walmart, Dollar General, CVS and Health and Microsoft, Amazon, the new cost plus drug company that's the Mark Cuban company, and then Somatis. I mean, these are all very interesting and very good for the patient population, but how are legacy healthcare providers going to partner with these, these disruptors and, and really strengthen healthcare? I mean, I think there's a lot of room here for everyone to grow in this space. So we'll be looking at that closely. Yeah, without a doubt. Every day there's breaking news about Amazon or Google or one of the retailers. So we'll definitely be discussing what those behemoths, so to speak, have in the works. There are also niche companies that are seeking to improve care delivery, um, in some cases for specific segments of the population. We'll share one example of a concierge and navigation platform that represents an effort to tackle racial disparities seen in health outcomes in areas such as cardiovascular disease and maternal and infant health. Uh, Sean, I know you said there are also lessons to be gleaned from disruptors that have kind of disbanded, for lack of a better term. Yeah, Nick, I mean, we're going to take a look at, at some of those disbanded disruptors like the Amazon, Berkshire, JP Morgan, Haven Venture. You know, that's disbanded, but they took away a lot of good information, each one of those companies back to their own company and implemented them. So was it really, I really wouldn't call that a failure. Um, I would call that a disbanded adventure or disruption. Um, Google Health, I mean, even though they've disbanded pieces of their projects, they've learned a lot and they're going to move forward. And as we all know, Google is extremely inventive. So we look forward to very interesting things in their area. And then, of course, there have been some egregious and and very concerning failures with Theranos, um, which we'll talk about a little bit and what that might do to federal regulation 
moving forward for some of these groups. So it should be an interesting talk. I'm looking forward to the time we spend. Absolutely. So there's just a ton of insight for us to mine on this topic. And uh, the webinar takes place again, March 23rd. You can get CPE for attending. And as with most webinars, the session is free for HFMA members. Uh, so you, if you're interested in registering, go to learn.hfma.org. And if you scroll down a little ways, you'll see the title, which is Beyond the News, the Healthcare Disruption Landscape. So we hope to see you all then. There's an episode of the NBC show Parks and Recreation that I've thought of many times over the last two years. In the episode, Amy Poehler's character, City Councilwoman Leslie Nope, tries to pass a bill adding fluoride to municipal water. Her political rival, Jeremy Jam, opposes the measure because as a local dentist, it's in his business interest for people in the town to have more cavities. Jam spreads a bunch of misinformation about fluoride being a dangerous chemical, and Leslie Nope has to figure out a way to win over the public. In one exasperated moment, she tells her husband, all I have on my side is facts and science and people hate facts and science. The episode is from 2013, but that line comes to mind every time I read a story about misinformation around vaccines. For a while, I thought that was just me being cynical, but according to my guest today, Leslie Nope was correct. Facts and science are not the principal drivers of our decisions about our healthcare or much of anything. Recently, I talked with Jacob Browdy, a principal at ZS, which is a consulting services firm with a specialization in life science. ZS conducted some research in 2021 to try to identify what tactics could convince people who were hesitant to get a vaccine for COVID or something else like shingles or HPV. We'll link some information about that research in the show notes. Some of their findings about tactics that worked are surprising, but what was even more surprising was what didn't. Vaccination for COVID-19 has been the topic of hot debate, but even among those people who were enthusiastic to get their first two doses, there's some anecdotal evidence of people saying two shots is enough. Um, we are recording this on February 25th, and I looked up some numbers just before I got on here to do this recording. According to the CDC, 215.3 million people are fully vaccinated, so two doses. Only 93.6 million people have gotten a booster. The younger age, the elementary school age kids weren't starting to be vaccinated until like November, December last year, so they wouldn't be due for a booster yet necessarily, but that's still a pretty wide gap. Now we're, we're still kind of in that booster place. There's been some discussion around fourth shots, although again, we're recording on February 25th, there was news coming from the New York Times, I believe yesterday, saying that fourth shots might not really be effective and we might be able to get by on three shots for a long time. Who knows what that's going to be even before this episode comes out. But we've also discussed maybe an annual routine, like you get your flu shot every year, you get your COVID shot every year. What are you seeing among people who were initially vaccinated, are you seeing resistance? Are you seeing, I know you've done some research in this area, so I'm, I'm curious what you've learned. The original research that we did was back in March and April of last year. So it was really before this became a super hot topic and we were primarily looking at how do we help encourage vaccine acceptance across a broader pool? Now, I think you're right. A lot of the conversation is starting to shift to how do we get folks to accept boosters as they're starting to get 
tired. Everybody's getting really tired. I think that accentuates one of the key areas that we wanted to look at, which is how are the unconscious parts of their brain influencing some of the decisions that they're making? And, and one of the things that the science is really clear about is that the more tired you get, the more you tend to just default to instinct, right? The more you rely on those sort of mental shortcuts that you're maybe not aware of, you just don't feel like getting one. And you might provide some good rationalization, but that's not really why you're not getting one. You're really just not getting one because you don't feel like it. And that's something that we as an industry haven't been very good at looking at. We've mostly taken people at their word and worked to generate data to help explain what is the benefit. And if someone's making the decision because they don't feel like it, there's no amount of data that persuades them. They're not making a data-driven decision. They're making an instinctual decision. So I think the opportunity for a lot of folks in our area is to factor that in to the way that we help explain why you should look at a booster or why you shouldn't. I think one of the key barriers that we're encountering with the fall off on the boosters is just the way that things have been framed, the, the expectation setting. There's a lot of research that what you think about something depends on what it's compared to. I'll give you a non-healthcare example. They asked people to estimate how many calories were in a cheeseburger. And half of them, they first looked at a cheesecake and they were like, oh, cheeseburger, cheesecake, cheeseburger is probably not, not that bad, about 700 calories. And the other half of them first looked at a fruit salad and they're like, oh man, compared to a fruit salad, cheeseburger is probably killing it. That's probably a thousand calories. So the cheeseburger is the cheeseburger is the cheeseburger, right? It doesn't change, but by changing the reference point, it changes how you evaluate it. And so when we come out after the first couple of doses and say, everybody can take their masks off. No one needs to worry about it anymore. Before we realized, hey, vaccinated people can still catch COVID and spread COVID. I think the constant changing narrative from authority creates a framing issue where all of a sudden I'm evaluating things differently. Whereas if we'd set expectations differently in the beginning, there might be much greater acceptance of boosters than what we're seeing. I was thinking not long ago about just the beginning and how little we knew about COVID at all. And, you know, people are wiping down their groceries when they come home from the store. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we learned a lot in the last two years, but there's still clearly a lot to be learned. And it is exhausting having to keep up with what it is that we're, we're supposed to do now. I think there's a lot in healthcare that we can not do because we don't feel like it. We've been talking a lot about deferred care and people putting off cancer screenings because of COVID, um, because there, there wasn't as much availability or people were afraid of getting sick. But I think at this point, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't want to go. I mean, who wants to, who looks forward to their cancer screening? So it, it feels like the same kind of energy there. Yeah, it's, it's worse than that. So do you remember when, when they put Watson on Jeopardy and Watson was able to beat those couple of... Okay, so I, I like this because it gives you an example of just how underpowered we are. So the human brain operates on about 20 watts, whereas Watson was blowing through about 200,000 watts of power, right? So that's how much energy it takes to think about everything rationally. We just don't have it. We could think about a few things a day rationally, and that energy is on all our choices. Do I blow up when my kid is whining at me about something? Do I engage with their teacher do I make myself work out this morning when I don't really feel like it? All of those decisions where your brain is making you do stuff 
that maybe your instincts are saying, nah, don't do that. That's a finite resource. And so if you're spending that on making yourself understand the value of the booster and go and get it and deal with the repercussions of it, that's not just a cost to what else you do in your health. It's a cost that you pay to whatever else you do in your life that requires you to be making rational, thoughtful decisions. It's a lot to ask of people. Wow. So, so then what's the response here? Um, I'm asking a lot for you to even answer that question, but how can healthcare organizations keep people engaged? If, if the end goal is getting your booster, getting whatever is next, do they need to change their communication plan? Um, if, if we already know that people are exhausted from the changing narrative and, and having to learn new things about whatever we all, you know, as a, as an industry, as a society are learning about COVID and vaccinations and all of those things. And are there opportunities to bring in people who were hesitant in the beginning, or do we just kind of consider them lost at this point? You ask a couple of really complicated questions. So let's start with the, like, what can we do differently? Because I think that one is more straightforward. So if you accept the, the biological argument, that you've only got enough horsepower and energy on a regular day to think a certain number of things through and make rational decisions. The rest of those choices that you're making every day, and we we are all of us making thousands of choices a day, is being governed by another system, which is wired for speed. It's it's a simple rules-based system that allows you to quickly and very cheaply make decisions that are not likely to get you killed, or put you in danger or endanger your family, that sort of thing, right? So it all comes from some sort of evolutionary imperative. And I I think that the opportunity is to talk to that system at least as much as we talk to the rational brain. So for example, one of the tests that we ran in the spring is we asked people to tell us what are the locations that you trust, right? So it could be fire station, military base, church, those sorts of places, could be pharmacy. And then later we asked them, okay, well, if you could get it at place you trust versus neutral place, what's your willingness to get vaccinated? And all of these people, all the respondents were either anti-vaccine or at least hesitant. And we did see a nice improvement in willingness to get vaccinated if it was at that place that they trust. And we were doing this in early days, right? People were going out with coolers and going to the supermarket and going to the church. And then it just became back to the sort of normal You can get it at pharmacies. You can go into your doctor's office and that's it. That's all you get. So if those happen to be places that you are not particularly trustworthy in your mind, then you miss an opportunity to bring more of those folks in, right? That trust location is a signal for that second system, that that instinctive system. I'm at church. This is a place I trust. I value what they tell me. I don't have to necessarily critically think about everything that they tell me here. I can trust it without having to do that. So if I can get vaccinated there, that's a way for me to make that decision without it having to be something that I rationally walk through the data in my head and and make an educated decision to do it. I think there are a number of those kinds of things where we're just missing an opportunity to incorporate that into it. So that instead of it not feeling like something you want to do, it feels more like something you want to do. So like making it easy to do it, was helpful for people. Perspective taking worked really well. If you just say to someone, 
maybe you're talking to your friend, why do you think Erica wanted to get the booster? Just letting them think that through for a second can be a really good way to get somebody comfortable with it when just trying to explain to them, like, here's why you should do it doesn't actually convince them. So how much of this, especially if we're talking about locations you trust or institutions you trust, how much is just convenience too? If I'm already at church Mm. and they're offering me a vaccine as I'm walking out the door, that's a lot easier than making an appointment at a pharmacy. Convenience, absolutely. So that second system, remember, wired for efficiency. So anything that reduces effort is going to make that system go, oh, we should probably do that. That seems like something that's good for us. We also tested researchers would call it authority bias, but same way we did with like places you trust, who are people you trust? You get to tell us, could be Sean Hannity, whatever, we don't care. But then later we said, okay, Sean Hannity, for example, thinks that you should get vaccinated. That actually backfired. The use of authority figures as a way to persuade people to accept vaccines actually pushed people away from vaccination. And we still see a lot of institutions relying on authority figures as a way to help improve some of these numbers that we're seeing. And I think that it's an example of using that second system badly, right? It just, it doesn't help. If if anything, it can hurt. Wow. That's really interesting. I would not have expected that. No, we didn't didn't either. We were also surprised. That's really interesting. Although, I mean, does it just kind of come down to you can't tell me what to do? Um, is, is that what it is? What's the dynamic there? I don't know. It's a great question. I mean, it's become so politicized in the U.S. in particular. One of the other ones that we looked at is like, it's called in-group bias. It's basically like people like me do this. And so I should do it too. And it has a, a corresponding effect, which is people that I specifically am not like are doing this. And so I shouldn't do it, right? It can push you away or towards things. We didn't really see it influential in COVID vaccines, but we did see it work in adult vaccines like the shingles vaccine or pediatric vaccines. If you thought that people like you accept these vaccines, it made you, even if you're hesitant or against vaccines, it made you more comfortable with the idea and more willing to accept it. So if I'm a physician and I'm counseling someone who's hesitant, talking about other patients I have who are like them, maybe they're, you know, moms that have kids of a certain age and they play a certain role in their community and they've been really accepting of vaccines can be very persuasive rather than just explaining the data and trying to make it a rational decision. From things I've heard, just anybody telling people, anybody telling people to get a vaccine doesn't seem to be the, the thing that works. And there's been a lot of discussion on like shouting at people about you have to get this isn't going to make anybody get on your side. There is a physician. I do not know her, but I admire her. I follow her on Twitter. Her name is Kimberly Manning, who uh, she's with Emory University School of Medicine, um, and she tells a lot of stories on Twitter about talking to patients about getting the vaccine. And she, it's always question-based. It's always, you know, why are you hesitant? What questions can I answer for you? And I'm sure that plenty of people, you know, leave her and say, thanks, but no thanks. But she tells some stories of, you know, people saying, well, I'm concerned about this. And she can answer those questions in a way that satisfies what they wanted to know. and 
several people she's been able to say, okay, you know, do you want to get your first dose today? And a lot of them take her up on that. So she seems to have tapped into that, but I feel like as an industry, we haven't been able to accomplish that yet. Yeah, I would agree. One of the ones that that I've been using personally in my life. Um, so there's a principle called social facilitation, which is basically the idea that when you become aware that people are paying attention to you and judging you, you change your behavior. So for example, um, they did this experiment at a coffee shop where they put a picture of a pair of eyes on the tip jar, just to prime people with the idea that like, you're standing in line, you're in a coffee shop, people are paying attention to what you're doing and tipping is a good thing to do. And tips doubled when they did that. So that's a, if you've got a teenager who's got an, a job where there's a tip jar, that's one that I always recommend. So anyway, we tested this with folks who are vaccine hesitant, where if they felt like their vaccine status was something that people were aware of and were paying attention to, then they were more willing to get vaccinated. And the way I've been practicing this in my life is, you know, when I saw my barber, first thing out of my mouth is, hey, are you vaccinated? Same thing with my irrigation guy or whoever it is. And you can see in their face that they're very surprised that you care, that you're willing to ask. And it makes an impact. And, and the next time I went to get my hair cut, the first thing out of her mouth was, hey, I got my first dose. So I think those kinds of tactics that just make people feel like it is something that they should do or want to do or would be easy to do or that they can trust it rather than focusing on what we know from the science can help with that chunk of people who are not making the decision rashly, who are making it emotionally. Let's flip this for a moment and talk about people for whom getting the COVID vaccine has really kind of made them want to be engaged in things like vaccinations. Because most of us, we get vaccinations when we are babies and toddlers and children, and then we don't really get a whole lot of that throughout our lives. So you might get a flu shot, you might get certain things, but for the most part, your shots happen when you're too young to remember them. So then as adults, the COVID-19 shot might be the first thing that they've really engaged in saying, okay, I'm going to get this vaccine. I know someone who I won't name, but uh, she didn't get routine vaccinations for her children. She was sort of, I don't want to say anti-vaxxer because that has a connotation at this point in time, but she didn't want to get those routine vaccinations for her kids when they were little, but she has now become an outspoken advocate for the COVID-19 vaccination. So that has brought her into the system. I haven't gotten a flu shot in years, but I got one this year and it just felt like a natural, convenient thing to do. And this, this probably comes back to the convenience and trust. I was at my doctor's office for something else. They said, do you want a flu shot? I said, sure. Are there opportunities for healthcare organizations to identify people who are now a little more dialed in and might take advantage of vaccines when they haven't before, not just a flu shot, but things like a shingles vaccine or other things that you get kind of as an adult, as you get older. So I would say the jury's still out. I think it's a double-edged sword, right? It looks promising, but there are many folks who because of the speed or the misunderstanding or the politicization around the COVID vaccine went the other way. And that made them anti other vaccines. I think what you're describing is the development of a new one of these subconscious rules, right? Like by going through this process of COVID and seeing how vaccination was able to help 
limit the spread and limit the hospitalizations and deaths that we were seeing and allow us to open back up, a lot of us developed a new rule. Vaccines are good. I should get those. Preventative vaccines are something that is important in my life. So yes, I think anyone who developed that new rule going through that process is going to need a lot less persuasion about other vaccines because now they've got that rule in there. And so their instincts are saying, yeah, this is probably good. And very quickly they're going, yeah, I'll I'll take the shingles vaccine or do I want the flu vaccine? Yes, I do. I think that the challenge is also going to be for those folks who have developed a vaccines are untrustworthy rule. Maybe they got vaccinated as kids, but now they've become part of this skeptical group. It's going to be then hard to they turn 65, they needed the pneumococcal vaccine. We may encounter new resistance over the next five or 10 years as that group of folks age into that area and we're part of that anti-COVID vaccine group. And this is like a very exciting time for vaccines. I mean, there's so much research around mRNA technology. We may have vaccines against all kinds of things in the future. So setting that stage now for both reinforcing the folks who now have a a pro-vaccine rule in their brain and working with our healthcare professionals in particular to have more of that open question, using sites of trust, making sure that it's easy, making vaccine status something that people are aware of and paying attention to, tapping into social groups to reinforce the idea to get vaccine, to try to change that rule so that they are also Having a pro-vaccine rule, I think, is going to be important, not just for for how we deal with this particular pandemic, but with all kinds of health decisions in the future. You mentioned you're planning to do some more research on this topic. What what are you looking to learn next? Well, I think we want to investigate very specifically this, like, I've already had one dose or I've had two doses and full immunity depends on me completing the series either getting the booster, getting the routine annual flu vaccines, or completing a series of inoculations in order to be protected from a particular disease like pneumococcal or RSV for infants or shingles. Shingles is a good one. I'm looking forward to getting that vaccine. So we want to investigate, like, what are the rules people have in their brains that we need to factor in and that we can bring into health systems and other types of healthcare stakeholders to help them right out of the gate, be speaking to both sides of the brain. I think when COVID hit and the vaccines came out, it was moving so fast and furious that the opportunity to really come in with a two parts of the brain um, strategy off the bat, we just missed it. It was going so fast. But now looking towards the future when there's going to be so many amazing breakthroughs that we anticipate, having that baked into the system from the get-go, I think will make the acceptance of those vaccines much more successful. So we want to look at How do we nudge folks around boosters? How do we nudge folks around getting the second, third, or fourth dose in a series and then bringing that to doctors, in particular nurses, to help them in their conversations and and just stakeholders? I mean, I have vaccine conversations all the time with family and friends who are uncomfortable, hesitant, downright skeptical, or against it. So getting it out into the public, I think, would be really useful so that we don't have all these families just yelling at each other over this topic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, this has been so, so interesting. I am very curious and I hope that you'll all keep me posted on what you learn as you continue your research in this area. Thank you so much for joining me today and talking through some of these issues with me. My pleasure.
we're going to be at the World Vaccine Conference, which is going to be in D.C. in April. And there's just a ton of really interesting speakers talking about some of the new technologies that are coming out, some of the new vaccines that are going to be coming out. And we'll we'll be talking about this as well, you know, that trying to engage with folks both at a, at a rational and an instinctive level if we want people to actually take these. So hopefully we'll see some folks there. Yeah. Let's take a moment now to bring in our sponsor. Welcome back, Red Dot CEO, Michael Booman. Thank you, Erica. We've done a few of these segments thus far, and I'm sure there are people listening who are thinking, motor vehicle accident claims present a problem that we need to solve. What I wanna know from you, Michael, is who is your ideal client? Who's the one that you wanna work with on these issues? Erica, thank you again for having me, and, and really is a keen question. And to help kind of frame this up, and it's a stat that always kind of jumps out at me is, you know, 4% of all emergency room visits across the country relate to motor vehicle accidents. So it's a significant tranche. And when you think about what an ideal client is, you know, the first thing we go to is volume, right? Who is seeing self-paid motor vehicle accident patients? Whom can we help? Uh, and, and most likely that's going to be your level one and level two trauma centers. But really, it's, it's a volume sort of question at that point. But really to follow on to that, to get into where do we like to partner? We like to partner with you know, CFOs and teams that recognize the benefit of partnering with an entrepreneurial company, uh, that recognize that you could be innovative without risk, that you can change the way things have been done in the past. There are new ways to do things and really see that, listen, we can partner with a company, we can improve our patients along with, of course, you know, making more money faster without doing the work. All of those things work, but it's, it's finding that synergy with someone who recognizes the value of partnering with an entrepreneurial company to do good. Well, I definitely have enjoyed our partnership here on the podcast and the segments that we've gotten to do together. And uh, this, I'm sure, will not be the last of Michael Booman on the Voices podcast. But thank you once again for joining me today. Uh, Eric, it's always a pleasure. And thank you guys for what you do. You're doing good in the world. And it's so nice to be a part of it with you. Red Dot is the best technology-enabled acquisition solution for hospital self-pay motor vehicle accident accounts. Hospitals can now leverage Red Dot's solution to improve their bottom line revenue while dramatically improving their patient relationships by avoiding debt collection activities. Red Dot, good for hospitals, good for patients. To learn more, visit reddotmgmt.com. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Eric Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. There's still time to sign up for Nick and Sean's Beyond the News webinar. They'll be discussing some of the big disruptors in healthcare and how legacy systems should respond to them. That's taking place March 23rd, and it's free to HFMA members. If you're listening to this episode on your way to HFMA's Revenue Cycle Conference, Sean and I will both be presenting, so I hope you'll come say hello. Otherwise, you can always reach out to us via email at podcast at hfma.org.